following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. We have been 33 weeks, I counted, I have it here in my notes, 33 weeks in this Sermon on the Mount. Um, This series that we've been calling Practicing the Way of Jesus. Now at the start of this sermon, right, start of actually happens kind of back in chapter four, there's some stuff going on where Jesus is doing all kinds of signs and wonders and then Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and brings up some of his disciples. In fact, he says anybody, anybody, his disciples followed him up the hill and Jesus starts preaching not just any kind of sermon, not just how to be a good person, but he starts preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Now, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's been showing us with signs and wonders the power of the kingdom of heaven breaking through this broken and dark world and showing the light and the glory and the beauty of the gospel. And here Jesus sits up on the mountainside and starts explaining and elaborating on what the kingdom of heaven is. Not only has it come, right? That was one of the announcements that Jesus made at the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. It's advancing. Not just that it's here, but that he's demonstrating what that kingdom looks like. And now Jesus sits up on the mountainside with the Sermon on the Mount and starts explaining the kingdom of heaven, what it's like, who it's for, how to get in on it, and what it looks like. Not to just have this, like this vision of the kingdom of heaven that's one day off in the future, right? Someday on the other side of Jesus' return, but here and now, a life that is wrapped up into the kingdom of heaven. Right? How to live the good life here and now. How to practice the way of Jesus, the way of flourishing. Now, personally, as I look back on this past year, these last 35, 33 weeks, I can't think of a better place in Scripture to have planted ourselves throughout this year, right? This this passage, these chapters 5, 6, and 7 have seen us through a pandemic or a big part of the pandemic. It's taken us through a fluctuating economy, through racial tension with a, a worldview collision in our society, an election cycle, And it's given us this buoyancy as Christians. It's given us something to really fix our lives to. So those people who hear the words of Jesus and act on them, just like we saw last week, we find for ourselves a secure foundation through all of life's storms, through all of the conflict, through all of the turmoil, through all of the hardships. Jesus is a sure foundation. And not just that we can survive the storm, like, Jesus, Jesus is, if your vision is just to survive the storm, that's such a narrow view. Jesus has a bigger vision for your life. Not only can you survive the storm, but you can flourish through it all. This is what kingdom life here and now looks like. And, and we now come to the end of Jesus' sermon. The discourse has concluded. And let me tell you this. This is like a, a what do you call This is a, a an archetypal sermon. This is a sermon that every sermon should sort of model itself after because in this sermon we see Jesus giving an invitation. There's an invitation, there's a vision for the good life, there's a sense of encouragement, and then the sense of conviction. And then Jesus 
caps this perfect sermon off by saying this. Here are my words. Here's my sermon. What are you gonna do with it? How is this going to impact your life? Now, of course, the the urge of Jesus is to build your life on this teaching. But he kind of leaves it open-ended for the disciples. Hey, you figure, you have to determine for yourself, are you going to hear and respond to Jesus' words, or are you going to hear and reject them? And then Jesus comes down the mountain just as he went up the mountain and he comes down the mountain and there's this aftershock that happens. The people are bewildered by Jesus and his sermon. The response of the crowd is more than just saying, hey, good sermon, Jesus. Way to go. You really nailed that one. People's jaws are dropped. They're astonished. Look at verse 28. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. They were amazed. Now we have to ask why. Why is this such an astonishing teaching? Why are people just floored by what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of heaven? Why is this sermon the most repeated sermon in the history of humanity? Why are we 2,000 years detached from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection still coming back to this and saying, hey, there's a foundation here. Now, to understand the significance of of the crowd's response, we really have to do a flyover. So if you're just joining us this morning, I'm glad you're here. Hopefully, this won't leave you in the dark. We get to bring you up to speed real quick and just do a really quick flyover of the Sermon on the Mount and what what made Jesus' teaching, what made this sermon so powerful. We begin the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus goes up with the Beatitudes. The question is, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. It's here, it's now, it's advancing. But the question then is, who is the kingdom of heaven for? And what Jesus says in the Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven is for the unsuspecting nobodies, the religious zeros, the people who have a spiritual bandwidth of a potato. That's who the kingdom of heaven is for. It's not for the elite. It's not for the spiritually affluent, not for the scribes and the Pharisees, merely based upon their status as super religious people, but the kingdom of heaven is for the broken. It's for the helpless. It's for the hungry. It's for those who mourn. And Jesus, in all of these things, as he makes this invitation to those who have a deficit, right? I mean, we could go down the line. The poor in spirit, right? You're spiritually bankrupt. Those who are mourned, there's, there's an absence, there's a void in your life. Those who are meek, Right, those who feel like I don't have any power or gumption in my own self, those who are hungry, and there's, all of these things point to the fact that the people who belong to the kingdom of heaven are operating from a spiritual deficit, and then it flips because those who are empty will be filled. That's the promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. In fact, this is where our idea of the pastoral welcome comes from. Right? I stand up here and I say almost the same thing every week to those who are weary and long for us, those who mourn and desire. It's the invitation that Jesus offers his kingdom people week in and week out. You could go through your whole week feeling like a complete failure, and when you come here on Sunday morning, Jesus stands with his arms open ready to embrace you. See, that's the, that's the message, that's the invitation of the kingdom of heaven and the people who belong to it. And then Jesus takes these spiritual misfits and he asserts their dignity. He's like, listen, I see that in the eyes of the world, you're a nobody, like we should just push you off to the fringes and just ignore you. 
But Jesus says, my eye is upon you. I see you right where you're at. And he pulls them in, gives them dignity, and gives us purpose. He says, I I have called you to myself so that you would be salt in a tasteless world. I've called you to to myself so that you'd be a beacon of light in a dark and perishing world. See, this is the invitation. Broken and useless people now are redeemed. They're, They're called into a gospel purpose. And now Jesus is saying, listen, if you've been called into the kingdom, Here's how you live as a kingdom person. Here's what it actually looks like for you to be salty in the best kind of way. Here's what it looks like for you to gleam with the radiance and the glory of heaven. Here's what it looks like to live into the kingdom of heaven right here and right now in the midst of your families, in the midst of your missional community family, in the midst of your church family, in the midst of your work environments, in the midst of your neighborhoods. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom person. And so Jesus starts unpacking what I've been referring to as the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven. Here's how the kingdom of God works. Here's how you live into it. Jesus gives us code, right? This, this, this set of ethics and values of kingdom people. This is how kingdom people reorient their life. This is the guide rails for kingdom life. Now, every society has a code like this. Every society has a code like this. There's no such thing as a society without some sort of shared code. And what Jesus is doing is taking this code that humans tend to operate by, like this sort of template for life, and he's taking it to the next level. Right, so he stands at the intersection of Second Temple Judaism and the Greco-Roman age of philosophy. And Jesus is presenting himself as the sage and the Messiah, the one who has wisdom and the power to make this all work together and so people can live the good life. And so Jesus, what he does, he takes the law of Moses, right? we see this as we go through chapter five and six, he takes the law of Moses and he exposes not just the, circum, or not just the surface level behavior that God requires from his people, but actually gets down to the core level of what these laws, what the 10 commandments are meant to shape our heart into. So Jesus isn't just about behavior modification. He's not just about changing your actions so that you can be more acceptable because of what you do. He's trying to change the core of your being. The heart is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from it. And so unlike other philosophers and other religious teachers, Jesus is going to the nucleus of your life. I don't know if that's the right term. I'm not a scientist, but I think that's right. He's going to the center, the core. And as he goes to the heart level, he wants to reorient our heart in a way that from the heart that's been made righteous comes righteous words and righteous living, right? Word and deed. That from, as he addresses the root, we see fruit produced. Check that out. Root and fruit, rhyme time. I'm not above that. And so Jesus says, this is what kingdom people look like. In them, anger doesn't take root, but they're reconciled to one another. See, kingdom people don't commit adultery because they're pure of heart. See, divorce is irrelevant in the kingdom people's lives because there's this radical commitment to covenant. 
See, because at that time, divorce was just a matter of convenience, right? I'm tired of you, next. Jesus says, no, no, no. In the kingdom of heaven, there's a radical commitment to one another. That he makes people of integrity that their yes is yes and their no is no. People who do not retaliate but pay back evil with what is good. And then he went as far as to say this, kingdom people love their enemies, right? Distinguishing mark of kingdom people that they are radically conformed around love. Not just for the people they like, but those who are their enemies. Kingdom people have this wholehearted orientation towards God. It's not just a veneer of self-righteousness, not just an act, not a facade, but all the way through, there's this integrity all the way through, people of virtue and true righteousness, where they see generosity and devotion and repentance and love just seeping out from the core outside of themselves. Jesus cast this beautiful vision, an incredible vision of what it looks like to be a kingdom person, right? How to live into the kingdom of heaven here and now. Now, make no mistake, the content of this teaching is revolutionary. It's so profound. There's literally been nothing else ever preached like this. No other ideas come close to these ideas. Societies have been built upon these teachings. And then they forget about Jesus, but they still take his teaching. This is a new revelation. There's a new revelation of how to relate to God and to fellow men. There's a reason why Jesus goes up to a mountainside, right? That's a symbol of going up and receiving revelation. Where did Moses go when he got the Ten Commandments? Sinai, Mount Sinai, because God is speaking through Jesus, a completely new way of seeing things. It's a vision for how to live life with the grain, not a cut across it. A vision for purpose and significance of deep satisfaction and joy. Jesus is offering something that no other philosopher, no other teacher, no other religion offers. And Jesus gets done, walks down the mountain, and people, jaws dropped, floored. And I would speculate here that they looked around at each other and were like, whoa, what just happened? You, they got the chills, the goosebumps, like something special just happened up here on the mountain. This was a, a, a monumentous occasion. In fact, because of this sermon, the world would never again be the same. This changed everything. This was the beginning of a new era. This is the vision of, of a, a new life with Christ, life in the kingdom of heaven, the life that we just simply couldn't live without Jesus and his teachings. Now, one of the things that made this teaching show, show, so shocking is that Jesus actually drew a sharp contrast between his teaching and everybody else's teaching. He says, this is not a new chapter in the catalog of religious and philosophical ideas. This isn't just a, a new insert to put in your book of here's some good concepts to live your life by. Jesus says you can throw away all of the other books because this right here is all you need. Build your life on this. There's, there's no other way to gain the insights, the sort of the teaching that Jesus offers here. In fact, he says that every other religion, every other philosophy is essentially a broad an easy path to destruction. And those are, those are hard words, especially as we live in a pluralistic society. 
because everybody wants to be open-minded, everybody wants to be tolerant, but Jesus said, hey guys, the only way is through me. The only way is through this narrow and hard path, but it opens up to the good life. Now with Jesus saying some of these hard things, you would expect that a lot of people, it would just be easy to dismiss Jesus, that's so, that's so small-minded of you. You know, Jesus, we, we like it where everybody else can hold hands and get along a little bit. It seems like you're kind of rocking the boat some. Why don't you go ahead and, and see yourself? But that, that's not what happened. Jesus says this hard stuff, and people are, are just blown away. And he says this. Either you build your life on the rock that is Jesus' teaching, and you'll flourish, or you build your life on anything else, even the good stuff. And it's like a foundation made of sand. The storms will come, it'll knock it all down, be futile. Now this sermon that Jesus preaches, I mean, you see it all, right? The vision, the encouragement, the conviction, and it's time for a decision. What are you gonna do with this? See, the Sermon on the Mount has this beauty and the confrontation. It has this hard truth, yet comes with sweet poetics. Jesus speaks prophetically about the circumstances that we face right now in this world, yet points to a better future of what things could be in the kingdom of heaven. And then he cuts to the heart with conviction. And he calls for a response. No wonder why people are amazed. right? No wonder why people are just blown away. This is profound. Nothing else has crossed their mind or gone through their ears like this. It's an incredible teaching. In fact, I would be okay if we just hit the reset button and went right back to chapter five and for the next year did the whole thing all over again, personally, and make sermon prep pretty easy. But there's just so much gold here. And as great as a sermon that this was, the true cause of, of astonishment was Jesus. The true cause, the reason why people are astonished and drop their jaws and just amazed is because of Jesus himself. Not the sermon, but the preacher. Check this out. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the reason why there was so much gravitas to this sermon the reason why it was so weighty, why it hit so hard, wasn't because the words had been you know, meticulously assembled together and it just happens to be the best you know, organization of words that's ever been seen before. The thing that made it so powerful was that it came from the mouth of Jesus. It didn't come from those scribes or the religious leaders or the, or the uh, philosophers. Like those guys, they taught in a way where they had borrowed authority. Right? Everything that they taught about, like they carried some sense of authority, but here Jesus is contrasted as one who taught with authority, heavy authority, a raw power, a raw command, the kind of authority, you know, like have you ever seen a, a dog trainer blow a whistle? You blow that whistle and whoosh, that dog pops up. That, that, that's the dog whistle of Jesus, right? The authority, the command comes into play. Now all of the other teachers that came before him, all of the prophets, all of the scribes, all of the Pharisees, they were operating on a borrowed power. It's not that they had no power. 
Like God uses faithful men and women to communicate his message with power. There's a spiritual power that comes embedded with that. Even, even in philosophy, there's a sense of power that comes with those teachers, right? A, a sense of authority, but it's a borrowed power. It's an authority that's on loan. Even apostles, right, that we see in the New Testament, the power that they have isn't a power in and of themselves. It's about borrowed power. It's a supernatural power that's on loan to them. Even as I preach this morning, Right, even as I exercise the office of pastor, there's a natural spiritual authority that comes in this office. It's not my power, it's not my words, it's not my thoughts, it's not anything that I do or say that gives me a power. It's a supernatural power that's on loan to all of the clergy who are doing gospel ministry. It's a least power. But Jesus, he has authority in and of himself. See, the authority of Jesus, he was the origin of that authority. He, he didn't rely on anybody else to give it, but the Father validates his, his power. Right? We see later on in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus stands on the other side of the resurrection and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says that. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. He is the source of this authority. And what he's saying here, as he, as he casts this vision of the kingdom of heaven, you know what he's saying here, right here? I am the king of this kingdom. There is no way to have that kingdom without having me as your king. Boom, the authority of Jesus just hits you. Of course Jesus has authority. He's the king of the kingdom. Now authority is this really interesting concept. I was talking with people about this uh, back in our pre-service prayer. That authority, a sense of authority, typically carries this position. There's a positional authority that gets appointed. So for example, God gives parents an authority over their children. And we see this because one of the greatest acts of authority is to name someone. Right? So parents have authority to see to their, their children, to raise them up in the way of the Lord, and to give them a name. That's an exercise of, of authority. Right? Just the fact that you have a name should point to the reality that your parents are exor- have at one point exercised authority over you. And then parents who are appointed this authority then delegate that authority to other positional authority figures. Right? You send your kids to school. Now that teacher has some authority over your child. You send them to a babysitter or a caregiver or grandma and grandpa, whoever it would be, you delegate authority. You give this position of authority to people. Now here's the thing about this. Whenever authority is lent out, whenever it's delegated, there is a choice that can be made to either accept it and honor it or to reject it and rebel from it. So a child who accepts and honors the parent's authority Well, the command with the promise is obey your parents and it'll go well for you. But there's this inverse thing. You reject it. Kids, you listen up here. Here's your children's message. Reject your parents' authority and things are gonna be hard on you. Right? It's gonna be really, really hard. So with this positional authority comes an option to either obey it, to, to submit yourself to it, or to reject it. You have to decide for yourselves, will you trust this person who has authority over you? Will you obey them? Will you follow their lead? Will you submit to that authority? Or will you push away from it? Now the same thing happens within churches, 
right? I was talking about spiritual authority that, that pastors operate. The Apostle Paul makes all kinds of arguments for this back in Second Colossians, or Second, not Second Colossians, Second Corinthians. He's trying, like literally, he's going to the Corinthian church and just continually going back to, I have spiritual authority from God. But here's the thing, when you find yourself in a church, you have the option to submit to that leadership or to reject it. Now, what I'm talking about here is biblically qualified, godly church leadership. I'm not talking about like weirdos who you know, make up Bible verses and do whatever. Like that's not what I'm talking about. God, like God's design is for church members to submit themselves to the under shepherds who are submitted to the great shepherd in Christ. But there's always this choice that we have to reject it or ignore it. You have, you have the ability to decide if I'm gonna listen, if I'm gonna give that person authority. Now, they, they might positionally have authority, but I give them the option to exercise that authority over me. Do you see what I'm saying here? Now, the difference here between that positional authority and the raw authority of Jesus is that Jesus, as he stands as king of the kingdom, he has authority regardless if you honor it or not. You can choose to ignore it, Right now, you can. You can dismiss it, but that doesn't take away from Jesus' authority. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus, and it trickles down from there. Jesus delegates it out to other rulers, to, to pastors, to parents, to bosses, to spouses. I mean, just goes through. All of the power comes down through Jesus. Jesus still has authority regardless of if you acknowledge it or not. Now, that's because Jesus isn't merely immortal. Right? If, if, if it's merely immortal, you can kind of choose, I'm gonna obey or disobey, and then you know, if they have authority over me or not, that's fine. Well, Jesus isn't merely immortal. In fact, this is what the rest of Matthew shows in his gospel. That Jesus wasn't just some handsome and charming scam artist that dupes millions of people into following him. He, he doesn't use this like flimsy sort of authority going around and casting out demons and doing signs and wonders. Jesus has authority round, bound up within himself that he is actually God incarnate, fully God and fully man, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ. That he's the power source of the entire universe. All authority stems down from him. In fact, if we go to Ephesians chapter, or Colossians, oh my goodness, Colossians chapter one, verse 15, he says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Not just mortal, not just a smart teacher. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Check this out, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be overriding, that in everything he is Lord, that everything he is ultimate. See, there is no greater power than Jesus himself.
Now, let's just reason through this for a minute. If I, if I claim that Jesus is this God-man, it has to be this way. Like, follow this out. How else would a first century, poor, uneducated tradesman from lower armpit Nazareth turn the world upside down after being crucified on a Roman cross? How? In no other scenario than Jesus being this God-man, does this make any sense? You see, there's even been other people who have imitated this before Jesus and after Jesus, who've come saying that, yeah, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah, here's the, you know, they do that, and then guess what? Their, their discipleship maybe lasts for a few years, maybe a decade, and then it fizzes out. But Jesus, look at this, Jesus 2,000 years later, his message of the kingdom of heaven and how to get in on it through the gospel has moved across the globe. It's, it's infiltrated nearly every people group, every ethnicity, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So it's not just pocketed like a lot of the other major religions where this is the headquarters for, for this religion and this is the headquarters of this. Jesus' mission has spread out throughout the globe and so the local church is the outpost for the kingdom of heaven. That's the headquarters for Jesus and his work. Every local church. See, if Jesus was a fraud, this movement of Christianity would have maybe lasted a generation. In fact, one of the things the Bible tells us about is just how cowardly the apostles were after Jesus was killed. It wasn't until the resurrected Jesus shows up demonstrates the power of Jesus, or the power of God over sin, death, and the grave, sends his Holy Spirit to fill them, that the people, the apostles, the followers of Jesus, now have the supernatural power within them. Where did that power come from? Jesus himself. Now Jesus has this unbridled power in and of himself. Now you think about this. This kind of power is scary. To think of somebody, just think of this, giving our government complete authority, right? giving your boss, giving your spouse complete authority, that's a scary deal. Because what happens? What's this saying, like perfect power, what's that? Absolute power absolutely corrupts. See, this is the reason why Tolkien had to write himself into the story to destroy the ring. This is why the Infinity Stones had to either be destroyed or sent to their alternate realities which they came from. Because the idea of consolidated ultimate power in the wrong hands should be terrifying to us. There's a sense of fear that should be instilled at this idea. That's why we're so resistant. See, when, when we feel like the government's taking an extra, you know, taking a mile after we give them an inch, your spouse gets a little bit more control over your friend or whoever it would be, gives them a little bit more control and they start manipulating, like there's a reason why we push back, there's a reason why we get defensive. Because the danger is that if you give that person total authority, they can wield that authority to keep you under their heel, to make you suffer, to become a minion for them. 
But Jesus is different than everybody else. Everybody else has corrupt motives. Jesus was the only one who was pure in heart. Jesus was the only one who was truly righteous from the inside out. And in the hands of Jesus, he takes his power and he doesn't use it to subjugate people by force. Jesus takes his power and he lays it down in humility. He empties himself, Philippians talks about. He empties himself, subjects himself to the authority of God the Father to pay for all of the sin, which is essentially cosmic treason against the authority of Jesus in the first place. So Jesus is the king who gets down off of his throne, lays his life down so the peasants who gave him the middle finger and said, I don't want you to be my God, I don't want you to be my Lord, I don't want you to be my king, he lays down his life and pays the ultimate price for that kind of treason so that those peasants can live in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the only king who will die for you. Donald Trump Joe Biden, whoever comes next, they won't die for you. Your wife, your husband, won't die for you. Your job, your boss, won't die. Jesus is the only king which makes him the only fit ruler for you, who gives his life so you can have his. See, Jesus uses his power not to subjugate us, but to save us, to redeem us from the futility that we willingly jumped into as we shook our fist at God and said, how dare you try to exercise authority over me? We curse God with the very breath that he gave us. But Jesus was crushed so those guilty people, those who are guilty of cosmic treason, would not be crushed. Instead, they would find the way to true and meaningful life. See, this is the gospel. It's that kingdom people get what they don't deserve. It's a gift from God. Now some people will hear this about Jesus and be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, he's a weirdo, and they'll insist on being their own kings or queen, or, or they'll do this. It's like, Jesus can be my co-pilot. We'll, uh, we'll drive in tandem, it'll work out great. And you still insist on being your own king or your own, own queen, and you're saying, it's my life, my way. How's that working out for you? I bet you got a lot of anxiety if you've got to control every aspect of your life. I bet you're just on guard all the time. You're always fearful of the next person who's gonna come up and try to snuff you out, try to take advantage of you. See, not only are there eternal consequences to this decision of what you're gonna do with the authority and the lordship of Jesus, but it impacts your daily life. See, you, you can reject the lordship of Jesus. You can say, all right, Jesus, well, on with you. You can ignore his power, but one of the prophetic things of scripture tells us is that that won't go well for you. And you can try it out. Like Jesus, Jesus has a long leash for you. Like you wanna run away, like the story of the prodigal son, you wanna run away, you wanna reject the authority of the father figure in your life? He won't stop you. But eventually you're gonna come, come to the end of yourself, you're gonna find yourself eating scraps, pig scraps, from the bottom of a feed trough, and you're just thinking, man, I wish I could go back. And Jesus is standing there, he's still got open arms for you. Now you can learn the lesson by going all the way to the end of yourself, hitting rock bottom, and then rock bottom again, and then rock bottom again. 
where you can surrender and trust. Because the Jesus that stands open to receive those right now is the same Jesus who stands with the same earnestness, the same excitement, who will accept those who come back to him after a long road of rebellion. His posture doesn't change. He wants to receive us. And for those who reject the lordship of Jesus, unless they turn, it will be a futile road for them. Paul says in Romans 14 that eventually every tongue, say every tongue, every tongue will profess and every knee will bow. He's not just talking about those who have already trusted in him as Lord, but those who have rejected him. The people who have rejected him will come to terms with the reality of this decision to reject Jesus or to embrace him. Every tongue will come to profess him as Lord, so either you will bow on your own Either you'll see the beauty of the gospel, the sacrificial love of a savior who loves you like nobody else has ever loved you, and you'll give yourself and honor the authority of Jesus. Or you will be bowed. It's as simple as that. See, because as long as you stand up and you say, hey, I'm head and shoulders over Jesus, I can, judgment crushes down on you. You will be Bowed. But for anyone who honors the kingship of Jesus, anybody who says, yes, I want the kingdom of heaven and I want Jesus as my king because nobody else is like him. If you profess your faith in him and you trust him, you build your lives on, your, on his words, he will receive you, he will save you, he will redeem you because he has paid the price to bring us back into relationship, to give us access, to open the gate to the good life. And this power that Jesus exercises, this power over sin, death, and the grave then is at work now in our lives, weakening the grip of sin, giving us power to triumph over sin and evil that is rampant in our own hearts and our lives so that we can reorient our entire lives around him. He gives us a life that we never dreamed possible. He brings beauty from the ashes. If you can see the real Jesus, this is the real Jesus. The real Jesus who is both full of power and humility. The real Jesus that says hard truth but offers gentle encouragement. The real Jesus that calls us to the the narrow path that opens up to the good life. This real Jesus, when we see him for who he is and not merely some some tailor-made Jesus that fits our cultural ideas of him, or whatever my preferences are. When we see the real Jesus, there's astonishment. Your jaw drops. Because how can that king love a sinner like me? Your jaw drops. And when you see Jesus correctly, when you see him, your eyes are cleared up. Right, there's, I talked about this earlier. There's a reason why in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks so much about with eyesight. It's because we're spiritually blind and and, and we've got a fuzzy vision of Jesus, the real Jesus, but Jesus in the gospel unveils our eyes to see him rightly. And when we see Jesus rightly, there's astonishment and that astonishment then turns into worship. It's a joyful surrender. It's not like a, oh gosh, I guess I gotta submit to Jesus today. That's not it, that's not Christian living. If that's what your vision of Christianity is, that's not real Christianity. 
Real Christianity is a joyful surrender to the Lord who cares so deeply for you. It is an acknowledgement of your creator, your sustainer. It's a life of worship and joy. In fact, this is the, the entire goal of preaching. If I pull back the veil here for a minute, like the reason why I got up in, in the pulpit every week, week in and week out, and preach to you people, is because the goal here is not to give you more information. The goal here is not to give you some tips and tricks for how to live a better life. The goal here is to help you see Jesus rightly so you would worship Jesus more, period. And when you worship Jesus more, from the heart, overspills righteousness. See, this is crazy. The real goal of preaching is so people would worship the real Jesus more. And when you encounter this real Jesus, it, it leads into this explosion of worshipful pursuit. And you see this here in, in, as we go into chapter eight, verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So we see people who see Jesus and hear Jesus, people who are astonished and are worshipful toward Jesus, and then they give their lives to Jesus and following him. As Jesus people, as kingdom people, we count the cost of our discipleship and we look at it, we look at the balance, we look at the ledger lines here and say, well, I've gotta sacrifice a lot of things, I gotta give up my sin, there's some, self, you know, some self-worth stuff that I tend to infuse into myself, there's a lot of just baggage that I bring to the table, and if I follow Jesus, that means that I've gotta surrender some of this stuff over. Is it worth it? And you look at Jesus and you say, absolutely it is. Is it worth it? Absolutely it is. It's totally worth it because no other king would give up his life for mine. And so I joyfully give my life back. And this is what it looks like right now as we leave this sermon series that we've called Practicing the Way of Jesus. We don't stop practicing the way of Jesus. We continue practicing the way of Jesus in daily life, in every nook and cranny, in our homes, not just on Sunday, but every inch of my life belongs to Jesus. Abraham Kuyper said there's not one square inch in all of creation where the Lord Jesus doesn't put his finger on it and say, mine. All power belongs to him. And he's the only good king who's really worthy of wielding such power. Jesus is the true king of this kingdom. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We, we just want, we want to see you, Jesus. Not, not a literal sight, but spiritual sight to see you as this glorified, all-powerful, righteous one. The one who looks upon the, the weak and the sinner and gives himself that we might have the good life under your wings, in your kingdom. Would you show us how nothing else compares to you? Would you show us what a delight it is to give our lives to you? To be 100% bought in, to push all of our chips onto the table and say, Jesus, I'm yours. And as we see individuals do this, God, would you create small communities that do this together?
And as these small communities are created that do this together, would a church be assembled that does it together? And as a church that does it together, would you see churches planting churches of other people who want to do this together, God? And would there just be an outbreak of the kingdom of heaven here on this earth, right here and right now, Lord, bring revival. Let the gates of hell not prevail against this church, against this outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And will we be faithful witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus, of the Lord of love and the Lord of mercy, the Lord of grace? Jesus, we give ourselves to you. We love you. We thank you for giving us yourself, that you would break your own body and shed your own blood so that we could gain access to the kingdom of heaven. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Sheerly a gift of grace. We give you thanks. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.